What a wonderful uh, joy it is for me to be able to spend weeks looking at a passage and wrestling with it and having it punch me in the guts a few times and have it work me over. And so um, it is my prayer today that as we spend some time in this passage that it uh, does a good work in each of us, and I believe the Lord is going to do that. So the question we need to ask today is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? This is a question we ask about a lot of stuff. You know, we, we do this all the time. We weigh our options. Is it worth it to go to the gym, or should I stay home and sleep? Is it worth it to eat that donut, which I say yes, or is it better to not? Is it worth it to go to college? Is it worth it to not? Is it worth it to talk to a friend about Jesus, or is it not? Those are kind of lightweight. I mean, yeah, the college one is a big deal. But the big question today is, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Because, I mean, that's really where it comes down to. Everybody knows that Jesus has made demands on our lives and says, follow me. The question is, is it worth it? So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you the answer right here at the beginning. I'm going to give you the whole sermon in nutshell form, and then we're going to unpack it. So why is it hard for us to believe that it's worth it? Well, it's because of what we just had Ross read. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Translate, don't get the things I want, suffer persecution, and have to obey and submit to Jesus. Jesus answers in this passage with a resounding, yes, it is worth it. And we don't have to just take his word for it. He actually gives us three reasons. Each one of those verses that starts with the word for is a reason. He says the first reason is because you will find real life. The second reason is your soul is more valuable than you know. And the third reason, I reward those who follow me. And then it finally he gives us a glimpse right at the end. He says, and just so you know I'm telling the truth, I'm going to show some of my disciples what I will look like when I come back. And so that's what next week's sermon is going to be all about, is that Jesus returning with the transfiguration. So our problem is that we forget and we don't realize that the Holy Spirit is there to remind us and empower us to be able to do what Jesus asks of us. So our main idea today is following Jesus is worth it. Now, this passage today that, that Ross just read should not be a surprise. We've heard this before. Jesus has already said in Matthew, take up your cross. We've heard this in other places, in Mark and in Luke. This is over and over again. Jesus has said, there is suffering in the Christian walk. There is a denial of self in the Christian walk. So he's not bringing up something new. So what makes this week's different? What makes this week's so powerful? It's those fours. It's those reasons. And we're going to look at those now. So let's get into verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is a very famous phrase. We've heard this before. All, all four Gospels include this. It's a very famous word from Jesus. So we need to ask some questions here. Because as clear as this appears to be, it gets kind of muddied by our understanding of certain words. So let's start with the first part. If anyone would come after me. What does that mean? Well, what this means is 
if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, a believer, one of the redeemed, all of those words that we use for people who follow after Jesus. This, this idea, would, is a little weak. It's probably better to say, if you desire or if you long to, if you really want to follow Jesus, if you're passionate about following after Jesus. Again, this desire is not just something like clicking the like button on YouTube or the subscribe button or friending someone on Facebook. Anybody have any famous Facebook friends and you're like, yeah, I'm a best friend with that person. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a desire, a deep longing to want to follow after Jesus, to be one of his people. We want Jesus to say, this one is mine. Then we see there's three actions. We see deny, take up, and follow. These are three things that we are called to do. All three of these words are imperatives in the present tense. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me explain it to you because English is dumb. But in this instance, it makes sense. These are words that are commands. That's basically what this means. And because they're in the present tense, it means it goes on forever. This is not a one and done. Deny yourself once and you're mine. No, instead, Jesus is saying, my disciples are known for denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following me. So imagine it like this. Jesus is saying, do you want to know where my followers are? Look for the ones that are denying themselves. Look for the ones that are taking up their cross, and look for the ones that are following me. Following me doesn't mean walking just behind Jesus. It means living like Jesus, obeying Jesus. You know, our, 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 my kids look like me. Mostly they look like my wife, so they're better looking, um, right? But the, the, our family has a resemblance. And what we want to see is Jesus is saying, these are the three characteristics of people who are mine and look like me. And so this is what it means to follow Jesus. So that's the first bit. What does deny himself mean? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I want you to do what I have done. Remember, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. In Philippians 2, Paul brings this out, saying basically the same thing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but the interest of others. And verse 5 is when he gets into it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, and instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Jesus coming to earth, Jesus putting himself in flesh, is what was part of his denial. It's the same thing that he's asking us to do. We see this throughout the Gospels. One of the best examples is one we talked about a couple weeks ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. We are to deny our own desires. That's what to deny yourself means. The Greek word for deny is actually destroy. It's saying my dislike of my desires is so strong that if someone were to see it, they would say they've destroyed it. They don't want anything to do with their desires. Jesus' humanity wanted to avoid the cross, but he denied himself. We are called to do the same thing. We are called to deny our desires for comfort, for ease, for relief, for having all of our dreams come true. This is not to be our overarching goal in life. Our goal in life is not to have all of our dreams come true. 
It's not to have all of our desires met. Instead, we are to deny ourselves. Now, why are we to do that? 1 Corinthians 6 tells us why. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So why are we to deny ourselves? Because it's not about us. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. So it's important to understand what this self-denial is and what it is not. Let's do what it's not. The self-denial is not what is practiced by many monks throughout the world. A lot lot of religions have monks, but it's this idea of I'm going to deny myself all these creature comforts, and that denial is what's important. Okay? That's not what's being talked about here. Denial for any reason other than the glorification of God, the furthering of his kingdom, is a waste. It gets us nothing. It has no value in it at all. Yeah, you might get, you know, if I deny myself sweets, I might get in shape. And if I deny myself caffeine, I might get a better heart rate. If I deny myself whatever that thing may be, there might be some ancillary benefits, but it does not glorify God, and it's not what's being talked about here. This self-denial stems from a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's what it's not. What is it? What is self-denial? It means putting God and His priorities first in our lives. This should have a visible impact on what we do with our finances, with our time, with our attention, with what we talk about, with what we do, where we go, how we talk. All of that comes from denial. One author writes, being a disciple is doing what is right no matter how irksome the privations, no matter how great the dangers. So what is the goal of this self-denial? The goal at all times is to further God's kingdom no matter how inconvenient it is for me. That's the denial. It's not going, hey God, you know what? On my timetable, I'll serve you over here, but if it doesn't work with my big plans for my life, then I'm not doing it. It's the exact opposite of that. Oh Lord, you're calling me to do it and it's inconvenient? I'm doing it. That's denial of self. So what does this look like? Well, what this looks like is a disciple of Jesus not worried about his rights, his privileges, or his needs, but instead looking to the rights and privileges and needs of others. We're called to die to self and give ourselves to seeking the best interests of others. This means in our marriages, this means with our children, with our neighbors, our co-workers, and each other. I mean, this really is... The second greatest commandment, isn't it? What's the first? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, because the way it looks, we're talking self-denial. So it's, it's very us-focused, right? I'm focused on me. My mindset should be I'm denying myself so I can take care of others. Everybody outside of my internal monologue, which is a good thing that you're all outside of it, right? You're outside of my internal monologue, and all you see is that I am loving everybody around me. You see how self-denial and loving your neighbor, they go hand in hand. They're the same thing. So this self-denial is putting others first, no matter how different it is from your plans. So the second thing he tells us to do is to take up our cross. Now these two are not the same, but they come from the same heart position, the same heart posture. The posture is, Lord, your will is more important than mine. 
The self-denial is saying, hey, there's some things in my life that I really wanted, but I'm going to put those aside to trust you in it, Lord. In this, it's different. This is, I'm going to stand for you, and there's going to be actual people coming after me. There's going to be people going for me. This would not have been impossible for the disciples to imagine. This taking up the cross, you know, we have to describe it because it's not something we normally see, but they would have seen this. They would have seen, you know, people yelling and making noise and all of a sudden someone, some poor sack of an individual walking through, bruised and beaten, carrying a crossbar, stumbling and falling, and then eventually seeing them strung up on the side of the road. This would not have been hard for them to imagine. It would not have been difficult. Because the cross is you're carrying your means of death on your back to the place where you're going to die. See, the world is going to cut us off. The world does not like the Christ that we serve. Does not like him. Now, we've heard this take up your cross. We've heard some people say, well, this is my cross to bear, right? And usually it's some situation that they don't like. That's not what this is talking about here. Instead, this is talking about it's an active thing. I am standing for Jesus, and because of it, I'm going to have adversity. Now, does this mean you could die? Yes. Does it mean I must be willing to die? Absolutely. That's the main point of this. A Christian who follows Jesus this way, Revelation 12, 11 will apply to them. And it says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Taking up your cross daily means I am not worried about living longer. I'm not worried about getting as much out of this life as I can squeeze out of it. I'm going, I'm going to live until Christ says I'm done. And if because I stand up for Christ, it shortens my life because someone now wants to kill me, then so be it. Because it's not my life, it's his life. See, for Jesus, the cross was the ultimate expression of his obedience to the will of the Father. So to take up our cross is to live in obedience to God no matter what it costs us. So what does this look like? What this looks like is being willing to bear whatever comes our way, whatever affliction, whatever thing that happens to us, knowing that there is no accidents in the way God does things. Nothing is outside of His control. The Bible makes that clear throughout. So every trial that comes in our way, whether it be someone actively resisting us or a situation that comes upon us, has one thing in mind, and that's to make us more like God's Son. It's to make us more like Him so that He can be glorified. Our Father loves us and puts us in situations to grow us. We need to not approach it and go, Lord, what are you doing? How dare you? This isn't a part of my plans. Instead, we need to go, Lord, get my plans in line with your plans. Your purposes in my life are to make me just like your son. So to bear a cross is to not just suffer passively. It's to take action. It's to stand for something. We bear the cross when we care for those who are sick, when we comfort those who are afflicted, when we give sacrificially to the poor, when we share Christ with other people, not just his love, but his salvation, knowing that some people are not going to like that. Now, those were the easy ones, right? Giving to the poor, caring for people's needs. There are harder ones. At some point, you are going to have to stand for biblical truth. 
Now, by standing for biblical truth, I don't mean you go and you protest somewhere and you, you bring it on yourself, but we all know the world we live in now, there are demands for our acquiescence to all sorts of different ideologies. There are demands that are going to be made. You're going to have to choose between being successful or being biblical. It's going to happen. And guess what, guys? It's been happening everywhere throughout history to Christians. America has been a little aberration, a little period where it didn't happen. But it is here. We are going to be called names, hateful, patriarchal, bigoted, phobic, evil. In fact, there is going to come a time, Jesus has prophesied this, that killing us will be what they think is right. Remember John 16, Jesus talking to his disciples. I've said these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks they're offering a service to God. Translate that to today. People think that killing a Christian might make the world a better place. Might make their city a better place. Might make their country a better place. This is very sobering to hear. But this is the world in which we live. And this is the world in which Jesus says, you need to take up your cross. Jesus commented on this earlier in Matthew. It was about a year and a half ago. Blessed are, those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the key here is in order to carry our cross, there can be nothing else more important in our lives except for Christ. Our money, our comfort, our time, our relationships, our families, all of it has to take a secondary place to our relationship with the Lord. That's what it means. So to summarize this, this point, we need to daily die to self. That's the denial, right? We're, we're saying, I am not going to put my needs first, but I'm going to put the needs of others first. The second thing is, we need to recognize that we may die for standing for Christ. Christians have always been hated. They've been put to death. And that day is here today for Christians across the world. And one day will be for us as well. So we've got deny ourselves, take up our cross. Now what does it mean to follow Jesus. What does that mean? Literally, this says, let him be a follower of me, meaning this is someone who follows right behind Jesus. This is submitting to the lordship of Jesus over our lives and saying, you are in charge, not me. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's not to say that Jesus had a certain style of walking with a little bit of a limp or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is he's, we're to obey the, the, the model that Jesus has put out there. We're to follow him clearly. It means obedience. Now here's the thing. You can't follow Jesus unless you do the first two. Because that's what Jesus did. He denied himself. And he took up his cross. And so when Jesus says, follow me, those first two are implied there. You can't do the following of Jesus and say, but I, you know, the denial thing, I'm not. No, take up your cross, pass doesn't work that way. So we need to follow him and submit to the divine will. Now, let me be clear on something here. And it's important that we get this, because I think a lot of Christians get this wrong. What Jesus is not saying here is, I will save you 
if you deny yourself and take up your cross. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm only going to love you if you deny yourself and take up your cross. No, he saved us before we were even around, and he loved us before the creation of the universe, and it has nothing to do with what we've done. We get that? This is not, I do these things to make God love me. No, he loved you, and he is enabling you to do these things. We've got to get it in the right order. If we get the order, I have to do certain things to make God love me, now God is a vending machine. And that's not the God we serve. We serve a sovereign God who knew us and loved us and saved us before we were ever born. We must understand this. Jesus is saying, because of my saving and because of my loving, by grace, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So what does following Jesus look like? Well, it looks like this. We are to acknowledge his cause, his concerns, and his agenda as not only right, but right for my life and right for me to put everything on that and go, I know that, yeah, there's some good benefits to following Jesus, right? You maybe don't get thrown in jail for stealing and you don't do this. You know, No, we're doing it because it's what Jesus told us to do. All those extras, those ancillary things, awesome, but I am doing it because I'm following Jesus. We need to get past this idea that I have to follow Jesus only when it matches with what I'm doing and follow Jesus no matter what it costs. Because entering God's kingdom by following Jesus will mean we'll be at odds with our world. We are going to be living so dramatically different that the the world around us is going to say, shame, shame on you. How dare you make that stand? How dare you say that that is true? Shame on you. Early Christians had this thrown at them countless times. Jesus is encouraging us not to believe the world's lie. So we need to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus? How how do we know? Well, here's some questions. Is my Christianity characterized by self-denial? Am I thinking of this as all, what what can I get from my Christianity? Is Jesus, you know, only about me? Is it all about, oh, Jesus is going to do this for me and Jesus is going to do that? Is he my great cosmic Santa Claus that I go to and I put my order in? And as long as I've read my Bible that day, he'll give it to me. Is that the one that we have? Or do you look at it and you say, Lord, I've received your salvation, and I'm ready to give everything you ask of me, even if it makes no sense to me. See, self-denial is the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. So, we need to understand we can't pick and choose on these, right? You can't be like, well, I'm a self-denial Christian, but I'm not a take-up-my-cross Christian. Well, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm a take-up-my-cross, but you know, this self-denial thing, I'm not going to do it. See, all of these are a package deal. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this is what he wants us to look like. If you're here and you are a believer, and you are a follower of Jesus, these three characteristics need to be your characteristics. See, this is a very sobering passage. Most of us, we come to Jesus and we go, I'm coming to him because he's got a wonderful plan for my life. I'm going to come to him because he's going to make my my life peaceful. He's going to make it easy. Now, granted, it may be peaceful in that I have peace with God, but it's definitely not going to be peaceful with those around me. It's definitely not going to be peaceful with those who are near me 
And my life has never been promised to be easy. We do not come because he promises us everything will work out. His promise is not we will win every game. We will get the job we've always dreamed of. We will get the house that never seems to break down. We'll have an amazing marriage. We'll have perfect kids. We'll have, we'll have, we'll have, we'll have. This is not the promise that Jesus gives us. See, because we miss the point, right? Here's the thing that we miss. We miss that the most beautiful being in the universe, that God loves way more than he loves you, the most perfect being in the universe, Jesus Christ himself, on a scale more beautiful, more glorious, more awesome, adjectives will run out how great Jesus is. And Jesus came to earth, and he denied himself, and he took up his cross, and he followed the will of the Father. Jesus is the only being, folks, that has the right to pamper himself. Americans don't have that right. We're not good enough. Jesus had that right. And yet, look at what he did. He came and he suffered. He was a man of sorrows. He came and he died. He suffered. He experienced hatred, hardship, pain, and suffering. So are you going to say, Jesus did that to, or God did that to Jesus, but he won't do it to me? He's not going to do it to me. Yes, he chose to take the most precious being in existence and destroy him, but for me, he's got happiness and kittens. Is that really what we think? I mean, we don't say that. But that's what we think, right? Something bad happens. Things don't go the way we want. And we go, God, what are you doing? This is not a call to ease. It's not a call to pain-free living. It's called call to a life of hardship. Wow, Pastor John, way to sell it. <laughs> we do that, though, don't we? When we talk to people... We talk about all the benefits, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't go, here's all the stuff you get. Jesus goes, let me be clear on this. You're going to carry a cross. Let me be clear on this. You're going to deny yourself. Let me be clear on this. Your family members are going to want to kill you. Anybody want to join? That's how Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't list all the benefits. He lists all the costs. So I can't sell this. I can't make you like this. In order to do that, I would have to cheapen what Jesus is saying here. And I can't do that. The Bible says lying is a sin. And when we lie, that's the only way we can make this not a call to suffer. When you say, oh, it's all metaphor, he doesn't really mean crosses, that's a lie. The disciples sure meant crosses for them. All but one of them was put to death. Some of them were crucified. And the one that got out, you're like, see, I'm that one. Actually, I don't know that you want to be that one. That was the Apostle John, and he was boiled alive and lived through it. Not pass, I'll just die. So don't think that this is a, hey, guess what? You're a Christian. Everything's going to go great. That's not what's promised here. Oh, but you know, for me, as an American Christian, God sent Jesus to buy my best life now. We can pick on Osteen and the other health and wealth gospel, but I th still think we don't get it. We still think there is something to it, right? We still think, I can get good from God and miss out on all the bad. The problem with that is, you're not good enough 
to not earn the bad. Only Christ was. He's the only one that could stand. And yet, God chose to break him. So we need to get our minds right on this. We will have people trample on us. We will have people selfishly use us, ignore us, cancel us, and yes, even kill us. Evil will be done to us. People will hate us. We'll lose jobs. We'll lose family members, children, and ultimately we could lose our lives. But the world cannot touch our souls. If our souls belong to Christ, the most they can do is take our bodies away. But our souls will not go anywhere. This idea of suffering preceding glory is a scandal to people. It's a scandal to the world. It's a scandal to Christians. Are you saying that I have to suffer in this life? That's what you're promising me? Yes, you're suffering in this little teeny life, but in eternity, your suffering is gone. So how do we make sense of this? Well, Jesus doesn't just put verse 24 out there and say, good luck, kids. Go on, do your thing. He starts verse 25 with the word for, which means this is a ground. This is a reason. So reason number one, you will not lose your life, but you will find it. You will not lose your life, but you will find it. Jesus is saying what everyone is looking for. Everyone's looking for the fountain of youth. Everyone's looking for eternal life. There are billionaires out there trying to figure out how to beam their consciousness into computers so that they can live forever. This is not a new quest. Jesus is saying, you'll find what you're looking for. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, what does that mean? It means this. If your ultimate goal in life is to preserve life, avoid suffering, avoid hardship, and to live comfortably, you're not a follower of Jesus. You have no hope for eternal life. This is as good as it's going to get. If life for you is all about this life, then you do not know Jesus. But the good news is, if you love Jesus, he'll make it so you can give up everything and you begin living your eternal life now. John 12, 25, whoever loses his life, whoever, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Losing their lives was a possibility. Countless Christians have lost their lives. The world says, hold on to your life for dear life. Hold on, don't let go. The worst thing is dying and scary. Jesus is saying, no, no, there's something worse than dying physically. It's dying spiritually for all of eternity. So let's work on living for eternal life. We have to let go of all the natural wants of our flesh and embrace what God knows is best for us. The gospel does not offer us what we want. It offers what God wants, which is far better than our wants. And this is what keeps people away. People go, well, but I don't know if I can trust God. I mean, he's only made the entire universe and created all these inner working things that we still don't understand, but I'm not, I don't know that he can really fix my life and take care of me and give me what's best. See, that's why we come to church on Sundays, is not to get what we want, but to figure out what Christ wants and to align ourselves with him. And what Christ wants is he wants to give us eternal life now. You're saying, what, what does that mean? Does that mean I never die? No, it means you start living the life that you're going to live for eternity now with a redeemed heart. That's what he promises us. So that's our first reason. Second reason, 
Your soul is more valuable than you understand. This is a logical argument. It's a logical argument. He lays it out and he says, well, your, your physical life is this long and your soul goes on for eternity, so which one needs to be a priority? This is what he says in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What this is saying is the world's treasures mean nothing if our souls aren't with Christ. We gain everything the world has and don't have Christ, we have less than nothing. Do we get that? If you had everything the world has to offer, all the best everything, living in an amazing whatever, driving the most amazing whatever, eating at all the most amazing places, all the designer clothes, you have all of it. Jesus is saying, you have less than nothing because the only thing that matters is having me. Spurgeon, of course, gives us a good quote on this. Apart from Christ, life's pleasures are a painted pageantry with which we amuse our souls on the brink of hell. All the best that the world has to offer is make-believe and, hey, this is great. Don't look over here that you're going towards hell. Don't do that. Just look at this. We get this, right? We, we see this and we go, yeah, but where's the America clause? Where's the clause that says, oh, yeah, if you're born in the land of the free, this doesn't apply. No suffering here. Can we bypass this? Can we, can we squeeze by? This is just for some people, not for me. No, he says, if you're my disciple, this is what it looks like. If you could have everything in the world but just had to give up your soul, would it be worth it? For the people we see on a daily basis, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Like Esau giving up his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. People are saying, I'd rather have my life now than eternity. I've witnessed this. I have a past student who came from a Christian family. Both her parents were doctors. Her older brother was in, in med school, and she was, I'm going to go in the mission field, and I'm going to serve the Lord, and I'm going to follow hard after him. And then something happened in her life, and she decided, you know what? I really want, I want my best life now. And she denied Christ and said, you know what? I'm going to live it up. And to this day, I mean, she, she married a multimillionaire husband, a few years older than her. She now runs a business that makes billions of dollars. She's a celebrity. She's got books that she's written. She's got hundreds of thousands of followers. Her speaking fees are like $20,000. This, this girl has it all. She's got a big, huge condo in Miami. She has her own personal jet. She has more pairs of shoes than everybody in this room combined. And yet she sold her soul for that. She said, no. This now is more important than my soul. And I pray for her all the time. Somehow she always seems to pop up on my feeds, however that gets there. But it breaks my heart that that's what she's chosen. And Jesus is saying, that's a ridiculous choice. You're bartering the two. What are you going to give? How much is your soul worth? Jesus is talking about a future judgment. And a person stands there and they say, look, Jesus, look at all the awards I got. And realizing that all those are our idolatrous quest that points to, out to why they deserve hell. They're standing there with all of their stuff. See, Jesus sees it differently. We need to always be going back to how Jesus sees it. How does Jesus see our soul? What's the value of our soul? How valuable is it to Jesus? Well, let me tell you how valuable it is. 
the most valuable being in the entire universe, died for your soul, right? If we were to take the entire universe and put it right here in front of us, and we were to balance out which one's more value, it's not going to go, it's going to go, Jesus, more valuable than everything in existence. And he gave himself for your soul. See, we don't see our souls rightly. We're like, well, you know, I'm just going to flirt with sin a little bit, and it's no big deal. It's just my soul. Jesus is going, no, I paid the ultimate price for your soul. Stop looking at your souls as so cheap. Stop buying the world's lie. What do you mean you're denying yourself? What's the point of that? The point is, I go on for eternity, and I want to experience that now. I don't want anything less. Our souls are more valuable than we can imagine. Third thing Jesus says, Jesus will come to repay each of us. He says this. He says, I'm going to come. Denial, cross-taking, following me. There's a reward. There's an award. You're going to get something. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is coming with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus' second coming is not going to be in a manger. It's not going to be in Israel with a guy hanging out in north by Galilee. It's going to be in power. It's going to be glorious when he returns with his angels. This glory is not new. John 17, 5 says the Father had glorify him now like he had from before. 2 Corinthians helps us see this. He says, Paul says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8.18, for I consider the sufferings of the present not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Throughout the Bible, Jesus says, you are going to suffer, but it's going to be worth it. There is a reward coming. There is something good at the end. Notice that Paul doesn't sugarcoat it, right? He doesn't say, oh, this life is great and it just gets better in heaven. He says, no, you're going to waste away you're going to have affliction. You're going to have sufferings. But bear with it because there is glory coming. There is reward coming. And this reward is not just Christian and non, just for Christians. There's also going to be justice on the other side. Hitler didn't get away when he ended his life. His punishment started at that point, And it's still going on. Our reward for what Christ has done in us is going to go on for eternity. So now we go, wait a sec, I thought you just said a second ago we weren't saved by what we do. And the answer is, yeah, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is Jesus has saved us and our denying, cross-bearing, and following of him, which stems from his saving us, is going to build up for us a reward in heaven. This is a distributed award based on each of the, the things that we do. So yes, the thief on the cross who in his deathbed makes that confession, he goes to heaven, his reward is tiny because all he did was confess Christ, which is still epic. But the little old lady who lives 80 years and spends 65 of them following Jesus and nobody sees it, her reward is going to be great. Well, how is that fair? How does that work? What is God doing with that? Well, Augustine, I think, really nails it down. He said, when God crowns you for your works, 
So when he gives you your crown, when he gives you your reward in heaven, he's not crowning anything but his own gifts at work in you. See, when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, when we follow Jesus, all we're doing is letting the Holy Spirit work in us where everybody else can see it. So God gets the glory. So this reward we get in heaven is not going to be like, hey, look, at, I got more than you did. No, it's going to be, praise God, he used you that much? How much did he use you? Oh, that's awesome. Oh, he used you? Oh, that's so, that's the reward. So how do we know it's worth it? Because Jesus says, I will reward you. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Is it huge mansions, huge crowns? Is it, what is it? Better view in the new Jerusalem? I don't know. But he says, my reward is going to make it worth it. So as as bad as things get in your life, and I'm not going to stand up here and say that this denial of self is going to be easy. As bad as it gets in your life, the reward is infinitely better than that badness. So if you're going through it and you're like, this is the worst, there is no person on earth who has suffered as much as me, save Jesus, I'm going through the ringer, it sucks. The promise here is, yes, but it's going to be infinitely better in glory. And that's the promise we have to see. So how do we do all this? How do we, how do we make ourselves see this? Because I can stand up here and say it, and we can point out these passages, but when we're going through it and we're feeling it, how do I deny myself? When the world starts making rules that says, Christians, you must say these words. You must wave this flag. You must say this, wear this, do that. How am I going to take up my cross at that moment? The first thing we need to do is we need to remember. We need to remember the reward that is promised. And the problem with us is this is impossible. We can't do it. We won't remember. We won't have the power to stand up. If anything, we're going to cower and we're going to fall away, right? Wrong. Don't forget that God is the God of impossible. He makes impossible light work. He goes, impossible? <laughs> I do that on the daily. That's something that I do every single day. And here's how he does it. He sent his Holy Spirit. If the book of Acts had stopped in Acts 1, this is the worst religion ever. Jesus says, be perfect, go do all these things in your own power, good luck with that. I was God, I got the, I got the easy way out. You all, you're human and flawed. But praise the Lord that Acts 2 shows up. Because who shows up in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he gives us the strength to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. How does he do that? Well, the first thing he does is he reminds us. John 14, 26 says, he will remind us of what Jesus taught. And boy, do we forget. The second thing he does is he comes in power. Ephesians 1, 17 through 20 talks about this. You know what word is always in the same sentence with the Holy Spirit in the Bible? It's the word power. The Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's there. What does that mean? What it means is this is the animating force in our Christian walk. It's the Holy Spirit. So we need to submit to the Spirit's call on our lives. And then finally, when Jesus comes, he's bringing the thing we should be most longing for with him. It's not some present. He's bringing himself. Our reward is Christ. 
Our reward is this one that we have not seen face to face, but we get to see him face to face. And we can say like Solomon does, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. The promise in Revelation 21 is that a holy city will come out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, adorned like a bride for her husband. And a loud voice says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. And they are his people and God will, himself will be them, with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. No more, there's, neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain, for the former things have passed away. When Jesus returns, that's the picture that we get. God will dwell with us. We get to be with him. So again, he's given us four reasons why. And finally, last verse, he gives us the proof. Here's the evidence that Jesus is going to do what he said he's going to do. And that is, Jesus shows himself to his disciples. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. For some people, this has given people problems. Like, when is this happening? Is this the second coming of Jesus? Is this some other time? No, really, this is next week's passage, which is the transfiguration. Jesus takes them up on the mountain. Elijah and Moses show up, and they look at Jesus, and he is gleaming white. It's a preview of coming attractions. It's a preview of what Jesus will look like when we get to see him when he comes again. Or when we go to be with him, that's the first thing we see. So Jesus' promise here is he's saying, listen, listen guys, I know that I just promised you stuff and it's all coming in the future. I'll show you that it's going to happen because I'll show you what I look like when I come back. And that's the promise that we have. Jesus will keep his promise. Just like when we had the healing of the man that they lowered through and Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, who can do that? Jesus goes, well, which one's easier? Healing him or saying the sins are forgiven? Well, saying the sins are forgiven is easy because you can't see it. So I'll heal him so you know, right? It's really easy to say, hey, you know, I'll promise you stuff when you get to heaven someday. It'll be worth it. It's impossible to make two people that are dead appear and to make yourself gleaming white so bright that you can't look at them. He's saying, look at this is me keeping my promise. This is a preview of what you get to see. This is what Stephen saw when he looked up into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. This is the Jesus that we know. So, how do we know that this self-denial, this taking up our cross, and following Jesus will be worth it? How do we know? Because when we get to heaven, we get Jesus. Not the bleeding and broken and hanging on the cross Jesus, but the resurrected coming in all his glory, Jesus. We will see Jesus in all his glory. His second coming. All the denial of self, all the persecution and shame that the world heaps on us, all of the following will be worth it. And here's the last reason why we know it'll be worth it. Because if it were not worth it, Jesus would have never been sent by the Father. Jesus is too precious for the Father to waste on something that's not worth it. So Jesus was sent because the love the Father wants to give each of us is worth it. The reward he wants to give each of us if we're his is worth it. God saw how much glory he would get in saving us. He deemed it worth it. And who are we to argue with God and what he values? Worship team, if you would come on up for me, please.
We're going to take communion here in a second. And uh, there's some in the front here. We have some gluten-free up here. And in the back, we've got some back there as well. We'll take a few minutes to think about what we've been hearing today and take a few minutes to reflect on where we're at with the Lord. And then we'll take it all together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. Lord, thank you for the fact that you're a God that keeps his word. You're a God that makes promises and then keeps them. And Lord, the promise is so glorious today that, Lord, you will give us life and life eternally, that you will make every single bit of pain and self-denial worth it. Lord, that you will reward us not only with whatever that treasure in heaven is going to be, but, Lord, you'll reward us with you. So, Lord, now I pray that as we spend some time remembering your death on the cross and resurrection in our place, that we would see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.